From the National Endowment for the Arts, this is Artworks. I'm Josephine Reed. We're celebrating Pride Month and the Tony Awards by revisiting my 2020 interview with playwright, lyricist, and composer Michael R. Jackson, whose Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, A Strange Loop, has been nominated for 11 Tony Awards. Begun as a monologue in 2001, a Strange Loop had its world premiere in 2019 at Playwrights Horizons in a production funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. Until the pandemic, it was playing to cheering sold-out audiences. When live performance was able to resume in 2021, A Strange Loop came to a much-awaited Washington, D.C. debut at the Woolly Mammoth Theater with cheering sold-out audiences. I was lucky enough to be there, and even though I knew the music and the story well, I was still unprepared for its utter exhilaration and power. A Strange Loop is a rarity. It has a Broadway beat, witty lyrics, and it provokes in the best sense. It's joyous, disturbing, heartbreaking, and innovative. At the play's center is a Black queer artist trying to create while coping with the often punishing thoughts circling round inside his head. Michael R. Jackson explains the rest. Um, a Strange Loop is about a Black queer musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show who is writing a musical about a Black queer musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show who's writing a musical about a Black <laughs> queer musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show and sort of cycling through his own um, self-hatred. And where did you come up with this concept of this Russian doll plot? Yeah, it came sort of accidentally slash organically because I had written this sort of thinly veiled personal monologue when I was, you know, in my last semester, I think, of college uh, at NYU studying playwriting. And at that time, there was a monologue called Why I Can't Get Work because I was like worried about graduating with a playwriting degree and not knowing what I was going to do. So I just started writing this thinly veiled personal monologue about a black gay man who was just wandering around New York wondering why life was so terrible. And from there, I went to NYU for grad school to study musical theater writing specifically. And I went in as a lyricist. But then toward the end of the first year, I learned how to write lyrics. And a teacher gave us an assignment saying that if you're a lyricist who's never written music or a composer who's never written lyrics, go for it. And so I ended up taking sort of my musical abilities, which I'd had since I was a child. And I wrote a song called Memory Song, which at the time was just a standalone song, but it, it ended up being sort of the penultimate song in a strange loop. Mom is napping on the couch and dad cuts the grass while I watch TV all day long. Young and the restless, like one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. Dad is drunken on the couch while mom eats a pork chop. Daily bread mill, daily treadmill won't ever stop. One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. One lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord.
But I was encouraged to continue writing my own music. And just over time, I just began writing more music. And the songs I was writing seemed to speak thematically to the monologue. And so I started trying to put them into there. And then just long story short, it just evolved very organically over time into a musical called A Strange Loop. I'd like to hear your origin story. So you were musical when you were a kid. Did you study an instrument? Did you sing? Where? How did it manifest itself? So yeah, I started taking piano lessons when I was about eight years old. And I did that all the way through my senior year of high school. I sang in choir at church. I played piano at church for a couple of choirs. I sang in an all-city sort of classical chorus um, when I was uh, from middle school to through high school. So I was always very musically inclined. And I learned how to play piano by ear first. And then I took a couple of years of classical piano. But a lot, like my real chops came from playing at church and just sort of improvising, which is where a lot of my later composition skills sort of developed out of that. Interesting. And were you interested in musicals when you were a kid? My parents were like those kind of parents that were like, we have to keep him involved in something positive so he's not doesn't get involved in a gang or drugs. And so... Oh, they must like, have known my mother. <laughs> right. And so like I was always in like a dance class or like choir or something or Little League or whatever. And so I, I was... What I gravitated toward when I was much younger was theater. And so I did like child acting for a brief period like where I was doing like little children's musicals yeah and I had like an agent for a while I was in like a commercial like locally things like that and then I sort of decided when I was 13 that I was like too ugly to be a movie movie star so I left Mm. the business (laughs) Mm. oh god I'm sorry you know angsty teenager yeah god I mean I think honestly 13 is the worst age ever it is. It's horrible. I would not trade it for anything. No, I wouldn't either. Uh-uh. I wouldn't go back there for anything. Right. Anyway, so you transitioned out of performing and began writing? Yeah. Although, to be honest with you, I kind of was all writing at the same time, too. It's just that, like, I sort of started keeping a journal. Like, I was always keeping a journal, you know, because I, I always felt like I couldn't express myself very well. And writing was, like, the only place where I felt like I could fully just say whatever I wanted and no one would judge me or make fun of me. And so I was always journaling. And then that just sort of naturally transitioned into like poetry and into short stories. Because I was also one of those kids, writers, who like I imitated whatever it was I was reading at the time. Oh, yeah. So I started off as like a 10-year-old reading like Jackie Collins novels that my cousin gave me. And so a lot of the early short stories I wrote were me trying to write like Jackie Collins novels, which is really hilarious to think of like a a 10 year old doing that. And so then I just graduated from Jackie Collins to Stephen King and like Dean Koontz. And so then my short stories started turning into me imitating like horror and science fiction. And then I like went to high school and I, I took creative writing. And over time, I just developed and changed. I read soap operas figured prominently in your early career. Yeah, so before I started even going to school, my mother would um, drop me off at her aunt's house, my great aunt Ruth, and we would watch soap operas together. And so from like a really early age, I remember we would watch Young and the Restless at 1230. We'd watch Days of Our Lives at one o'clock and Days was like my main show. 
for so long. And then we would watch Another World at 2 o'clock, and then we would watch Santa Barbara at 3, and then I would leave the room and go to another room to watch cartoons. But then, like, as I started school, I would find myself continuing to watch soaps, like, on summer vacations and on breaks. And then I figured out that I could record them. Like, in high school, I figured I could record them on VCR. I was recording, like, three different shows every single day. And I would watch them while I was doing my homework. And so by the time I, like, got time to go to college, I decided that I wanted to be a soap opera writer. My dream when I came to New York was that I was going to become the head writer for One Life to Live. And so all, all except one semester of my internships, I did at SOAP. So I did uh, a semester at, at All My Children in the production office. I did a semester at ABC Daytime for the network. And then after I graduated from college, I got a job as a youth marketing consultant where ABC Daytime hired me and like five other white girls from Long Island and Staten Island to watch the then existing ABC soaps and like give them our opinions on it for like 12 weeks. Oh my God. And then right before I got into grad school, I had applied for a job as an executive assistant at CBS Daytime. And if I had gotten that job, I would not have gone to grad school for musical theater. Isn't it so interesting how crazy life is? It's just a roll of the dice and everything changes. I know. It's, it's like two roads diverge in a yellow wood. You know? So did you have an aha moment when it came to musical theater? Like, okay, this is it. Oh, I think I also forgot to mention that, like, as a kid, my mother used to take me to see a lot of musicals. That was, like, our thing that we would do together. So, like, I remember going to see... She, she let me skip school, like, one Friday, and then she... And my grandmother and I went to Toronto to see the national tour of Showboat that was running in 1994, the Hal Prince one. Mm -hmm. Um, And we saw that and we saw Phantom of the Opera on the same weekend. And I remember seeing that Showboat and like just being utterly transported by it because there was like a black character in it who was like suffering and who it seemed like I felt empathy for her. And the show, which is like about history and stuff, um, and I didn't have like a deep reading of the show that I would have later, but at the time, just the music and the scope and the size of it just like totally impressed me. And then we went and saw Phantom of the Opera and I was like, I don't understand this show at all. Like I like the music of it. And so I made my mom buy me the cast album to it and I, I enjoyed listening to it. But like the story of Showboat, I just found to be utterly captivating. And so it really set me on a path of loving what musicals could do. And then like not that far after that, my family went to go see um, the musical adaptation of A Raisin in the Sun called Raisin. Oh, yeah. Yes, which is to this day is like in my top five of musicals. It's such a beautiful show. And I hate that not as many people know it. But like the, the songwriting craft is like top drawer. And like the singing is just interesting. I bring that up just to say that like the early musicals that I was exposed to were musicals that all were sort of dealing with some sort of social issue or things that weren't just like escapist. Right. And so I grew very much grew up thinking that musicals could have really be about something. They could have um, teeth. They could have teeth. You're a, a triple threat. You. I hope you I'm not write- threatening anyone. Wah, wah, <laughs> no. wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> when did you add composing to your skill set? 
So that was one that was like a very winding road for me because, as I mentioned, I took piano lessons growing up and like I learned how to play by ear and I played at church. So that was a lot of improving essentially and learning like the chords and everything. And so what ended up happening was that like when I would be practicing or whatever, I just would be at my piano just sort of making up chord changes and tunes and I would hear a melody and I'd like sing a melody over something. And because I was writing poetry, I just thought lyrics were just poetry to music. But they aren't. There, There's more of a song structure, which I didn't understand at the time. But I spent a lot of time just trying to set music to lyrics and failing, but doing it like a lot until I realized, like, you know what, I don't understand how to write the words. So, but I kept playing around with the music. So then when I went to grad school to only to study book writing and lyric writing and then understood, oh, there's song form. It, it all made sense. And then the musical impulses had somewhere to go. But even at that point, when I started writing songs and when I wrote Memory Song and I played it for my class and it went over really well and I was encouraged to continue writing my own music, I still just thought, oh, I'm not really a composer. I'm just a songwriter. And I was very much in that, would tell that to people for like years, even after, as I was starting to do concerts in New York, I would say, I'm just a songwriter. I'm not a composer because to me, a composer was someone who was a really great pianist and who had studied composition at like a great school and who knew how to orchestrate their own material, like all these things that I just don't know how to do. But I had like a really good, strong musical sense and ear. And I just had all those years of like improvising and like developing a compositional style, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. And so it wasn't really until, I don't know, I, I couldn't even pinpoint the exact moment, but like somewhere into writing music for a bunch of years and doing a bunch of concerts, I like was like, you know what, I'm a composer. And it might have even been after I like really sort of started working on A Strange Loop more than I had been. But it took a long time for me to get there in my mind. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about a couple of the songs that you wrote and specifically mm -hmm. the opening song, Intermission Song, which is a fabulous opening. Thank you. And I'd just like you to tell me the backstory of that and how you came to it and, you know, how it came together. So the show is about a musical theater writer who works as an Usher to Broadway show. His name is Usher. And I also just have to say, just as always, as a, a caveat about people's understanding of the show, I drew from personal experience to write this show, but I do not think of it as autobiographical. I call it self-referential. And I make that distinction just because it's easy to like see the show and just think there's like this sort of one-to-one -one ratio of events that happen in my life and what happens to Usher. There's certainly a relationship, but like the show is about writing about the self, but that's different from just like my life. That said, I was an usher at a, at a Broadway show. I ushered for The Lion King for four years and for Mary Poppins. An intermission song came about because I was ushering at the mezzanine at the New Amsterdam Theater, and uh, we had just opened the doors of the theater so people could come in and start taking their seats. And this old white lady, was at the bottom of the mezzanine uh, and she needed something. And she yells up to one of the ushers with like her hand up, like she's hailing a cab. She goes, usher, usher. <laughs> and like, I just clocked that because I was like, she's like calling for one of us, like she's getting a cab. 
And I just kept that in my mind and that became the main motif of this song that I didn't know what it was going to be. I just had, Usher, Usher. And from there, I think I just started writing a song that was called Intermission Song about Usher was in the back of the theater and all the Usher, all the sort of heightened patrons were coming up to him and like asking all these questions, judging him and, you know, being disrespectful or whatever. That version of the song existed for years, years and years and years and years. And then what ended up happening was that once we found out it was going to production at Clarence Horizons in association with Page 73, I just kept thinking, like, what is this show about? This show is about what he's thinking and his thoughts. And I had an epiphany that that had to be the actual frame of the show, not this thing about the usher working and the inner workings of the theater or anything like that. Like that was just like a, an environment where he worked, but really the show was in his mind, not in the theater. And so I then did a full scale rewrite where the only thing that was left was how many minutes till the end of intermission. How many minutes till the end of intermission? Is that how the show should open? Should there even be a show? The should start with what he's thinking, which is just a cursor blinking because of all of the directions that the narrative could go. It was like him trying to figure out how do I write this show? And that sort of shifted the song, which musically did not change except for I wrote a dance break at the request of Raja, the choreographer. But the music all stayed the same, but I did a full-scale lyric rewrite. It is a fabulous introduction to the play. Just It just sets the table beautifully and it, it, it draws you in. You're there. There used to be a, a, like a little girl character going... I still can't find my American Girl Place doll. And that changed into big black and queer ass American Broadway show. And like, that was what we were making. We were making a big black and queer ass American Broadway show. And you said when somebody, I think it was the director or somebody who had done an earlier reading of, of the play, Michael, when they mm-hmm. suggested casting it exclusively with queer black people, you yeah. said something Something just completely snapped for you. You yeah. saw it differently. You could see it clearer. Yeah. So what had happened was, so as I had written a monologue for this like black gay male protagonist sort of character, that then shifted. I forgot to mention that like once I started putting the music into it, that shifted into a one man show that I performed one night only in 2006 at uh, Ars Nova in New York. And then that shifted into a something called a strange loop. The other principal characters didn't have like a formal identity at that time as a group. And so they just were just all these different characters and the actors would play multiple characters, like double and triple and quadruple cast. And at that time, it was like there were white people in it. There were cis women, you know, just anybody who was just a good actor was in it. And I did two readings of that with two different directors. And then both those directors got busy and couldn't work on it anymore. So I called Stephen up and I said, hey, I want to finally do a reading of this musical with the music because up until that point, I'd only done the book. And so Stephen, who had directed two concerts of mine, so he was very familiar with my music. And he thought, oh, what if we cast this as all Black queer people? And like that just opened up things that were just already naturally in it. 
So I just started writing more toward that conceptually, which forced me to have to think about what the identity of the other principal characters were. By the time I got to our reading that we did in 2015, the, the characters were identified as Usher's thoughts. There was like Usher's six Black queer thoughts, you know? <laughs> like that those bodies were, that's what they were. Um, and so, and I cast it very specifically for that. The music is vibrant and the lyrics are often quite funny, but it's also a very serious work that's deeply personal about a queer Black man operating in a straight white world. Mm-hmm. But I think also it's not only a straight white world. It's also a world of his Black parents, his conservative Black parents. It's also a world of white supremacist gay world. It's also a world of the theater as gatekeeper for the culture. This body is traveling through so many different universes. It's also a Tyler Perry, you know, Black ancestor world. He's traveling through all of those sort of trying to find himself. Yeah. It's not essentializing. Right. At all, actually. It's very, very specific. And speaking of specificity, another song in the play is periodically. I just like to remind you periodically that I love you some. If you ever should find you need encouragement, then you call me son. I am your mama and I've always loved you. Which completely floored me when that song makes its turn, which I really did not see coming. Yeah, so Periodically is actually one of the earliest songs in the musical. It's probably, after Memory Song, it's probably like the second song I wrote for the show. I did the one-man show version at Ars Nova, but then after that, Ars Nova invited me back just to do a concert of my music. And so for that concert, I had been like messing around with the idea of this mother character who just was always calling and leaving voicemails. And so throughout the concert, I would have John Andrew Morrison, who eventually ended up playing the character of the mother and winning a Lucille Ortel Award for it. Throughout the concert of just random songs I was doing, I would intersperse it with him doing these voicemails. And then finally, those voicemails culminated in this like, grand poobah of a voicemail song where Usher's mother is calling him on his birthday to wish him a happy birthday. And then that devolving into this complicated homophobic, but also like deeply loving phone call. Hell is real. Sin is burning. Sin is churning in rivers of fire because of filthy, unholy desire. Part of what I wanted to show in that is that, like, that's what it can feel like, is that it can be both your parents can be, like, homophobic, but they also can love you so much at the same time. Mm -hmm. And those two things are not just, like, disentangled from each other. And and those two things crashing together can make you feel all kinds of things if you're on the other side of it. And I wanted to see if I could create that experience for the audience of that, like, dissonance of those two things. I thought you succeeded incredibly because her love was so clear. Um, And that's why that turn was so shocking. But at the same time, that love was still there. Right. 
Can you remember the first time you saw the whole play mounted at Playwrights Horizons? Yeah, I mean, it was our first preview. And, you know, we had been working really hard. I had been doing rewrites sort of all throughout previews. I still was tinkering. We got to do that first preview and we could just tell that it was gonna, like that it was like resonating with people. And so it just felt very exciting to see this story and like emotional to like watch both for me having gone through the whole arc of things in order to write it, but also just actually seeing the story of like a, of a black, fat, gay man go from like hating himself to loving himself or like accepting himself at least. That arc for me was like extremely moving uh, with this ensemble of other black queer bodies on stage. I find it very moving to watch. I wrote this show also because I never had seen it. I had seen shows that had black characters in them and then I'd see shows that had gay characters in them who were white for the most part. And like never show the twain meet. Then like the movie Moonlight comes out and that's like black and gay characters as well. But it's like black and gay characters who are, to my understanding, are portrayed by like straight men who have these like incredible bodies, like cultural standards, that that's what gayness is. And I wanted to show something that was, no, what if you have to both empathize with a really smart and flawed and vulnerable fat black gay man who's going through something? Like, what if that's your protagonist? I had never seen that. And I wanted to see that. Did you think about audiences at all when you were writing this? Well, I did in the sense that I just assumed that it would never be produced because I was ushering at the Lion King and I saw Broadway up close. I saw the audiences. I was flyering for Rock of Ages. I saw the audiences, you know, when I was trying to get people to buy tickets to Rock of Ages. And I was just like, oh, well, I don't do this. So no one will ever see a strange loop, but I'll just keep working on it. And, you know, every once in a while, I'd get a little opportunity to, like, go to a residency or something and work on it. And so that's why when playwrights said that they were going to do it, it was like, oh, my God, really? You all are really going to do this? And so when it was like, yeah, we're really going to do it, then it was like, oh, well, if they're gonna really going to do it, this is my only shot. So I better make it really good. And so that... For me, it was about me and Steven and Raja and the cast and creative team and the crew, like, and, and Players Horizons and Page 73 and my uh, commercial producer, Barbara Whitman. It was all about us doubling down on what the show was, on, like, what made it unique and special. And, and like, and just assuming that because it was so specific that it maybe it might have a universal resonance, which I found to my great pleasure, it seemed to. It did. Like, so many people would come up to me after the shows during the run and say either, hey, I'm a fat black gay man and this is the first time I've really felt seen anywhere or on the stage. And then I'd have like old white ladies from the Upper West Side be like, I'm not a fat black gay man, but this was so moving to me and I empathize and, you know, and I get it. Different people from different walks of life. And that for me made me feel really good because I think that that's what theaters should do anyway. Theater should invite everyone to empathize and to like have a shared experience and to meet the protagonists uh, and the, of these stories where they are and decide for themselves how they feel. Don't you find it extraordinary? I mean, the great paradox of art is the more specific you are with your story, the more universal it actually is. 
Yeah, but I think that that's like also the beauty of it. At the end of the day, we're all humans. You know, and I think about like a moment like we're in now where there's like more division than ever. What I love about theater is that, yes, you can like actually empathize with other people who are not you. That is what empathy is. You don't, it doesn't have to be like, that's my experience and that's the only thing I understand. It's what it means to be alive. We are all alive people. We all like want to be together. We want, we're social. If you prick me, do I not bleed? You know, all those things. And so I, I think that that's why I love theater, that it can do that. I agree. I mean, art demands empathy. Right. And I also think it has the ability to take you out of your own life and mm -hmm. into another life. But then when you come back to your own life, you're enriched by that. Yeah. And also that's happening for the person next to you as well, while you're sitting there with them. And you both are experiencing this exchange of energy at the same time that's going to the actors on stage and that's feeding them. And then they can then give it back to you. And then you can like give it to each other. Another strange and, loop. Exactly. <laughs> that, and that was, and that's a real thing. Like I said that during rehearsals that, the, that like, I want the show, the experience to be a strange loop of exchange of perceptions because a strange loop is literally about perceptions of self. And white audience members might go into the show with their arms folded being like, who's that black gay on the stage? Like, what has he got to say? And then they find out, oh, he actually has some things to say that resonate with them as human beings. And then they have to divest themselves of this idea of a hierarchy or superiority. This is a theater is a shared experience. You know, it's like a charging station. It's like a well. You go to the well and you drink from the water and like sort of quench your thirst and keep going forward. It can empower people to be stronger, but actually tell stories that are taking risks and are entertaining for sure. Cause that was another important thing. One of my mission statement is to make works that are as challenging as they are entertaining. We just revisited my 2020 interview with playwright, lyricist and composer, Michael R. Jackson whose Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, A Strange Loop, has been nominated for 11 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Michael himself has also been nominated for Best Score and Best Book of a Musical. All the songs we heard in the podcast were from the original cast recording album, produced by Michael Croyder and Michael R. Jackson. They were Memory Song, performed by Larry Owens, Intermission Song, performed by Larry Owens and cast, and periodically performed by John Andrew Morrison. Morrison came to Broadway with the show and is also nominated for a Tony Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Musical. The Tony Awards will take place on June 12th. To keep up with Michael, go to his website, thelivingmichaeljackson.com, and you can get a peek and a listen to A Strange Loop on NPR's Tiny Desk Concert. Search for it at npr.org or check the show notes for a link. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Don't forget to subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts and then leave us a rating on Apple. It helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe and thanks for listening.